Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Yugambeh people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. My name's Nicole Bennett and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We are one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So let's take a minute from our busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode nine for 2022. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by a a planner outside of Queensland. Uh, Jason Byrne is a professor of human geography and planning. He researches urban political ecologies of green space, climate change adaptation and environmental justice. He has over a 100 scholarly publications, including a multi-award winning co-edited book called Australian Environmental Planning, Challenges and Future Prospects. Professor Byrne has previously been awarded the PIA National Award for Cutting Edge Research and Teaching and has twice been awarded the Queensland PIA Award in that same category. Before joining the University of Tasmania, Jason was the Associate Professor of Urban and Environmental Planning here on the Gold Coast at Griffith University. Jason completed his PhD at the University of Southern California and was awarded a commendation for his doctoral research on urban and national parks and social disadvantage. Jason was a senior fellow at Johns Hopkins University Institute for Policy Studies, where he researched environmental inequality. Prior to becoming an academic, Jason worked as a planning officer, environmental officer and policy writer within the Western Australian government. He now provides consultancy services to the Queensland Government, uh, City of Gold Coast Council, well, probably previously, I would imagine, Jason, and has made regular radio uh, appearances on ABC Radio, as well as some television interviews as well, I'm sure. How are you today, Jason? Um, well, thanks, Nicole. Wow, no wonder why I feel a bit tired. That sounds like a few things to have done. And hello from Mawilana country uh, here in Hobart in Nipaluna, Tasmania. Uh, and I'd like to also pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. And as part of the Tasmanian story, unfortunately, those who never got to make elder status due to the genocide down here in Tasmania. But it's lovely to join you today. I'm, I'm so pleased you could. You and I regularly stay in touch um, through the, the Twitter sphere. You know, <laughs> you're, a, you're a prolific tweeter and I, I love to keep up with what you're doing, what buses you're catching, where you're walking and, and you're gardening as well. So um, it looks like the weather has been, has been a bit um, cold down there and we're about to come down there for the, the PIA National Congress. So um, how is Tasmania? Yeah, dress warm. Make sure you have a Tassie tuxedo or, in other words, a feather down puffer jacket. Uh, I recommend one with ethical down, of course, but you're going to need it. The weather can change dramatically here from being uh, not too bad, 17 or 18 degrees this time of year, to even as low as 9 or 10 some days. Uh, and if you're lucky, if everyone's really lucky, we might get to see snow on the top of Kunanyi on Mount Wellington, which would be amazing. That would be amazing. So are you in Hobart? I am. Awesome. I, I can't wait. So I'm, I'm hoping today um, to run through a series of questions that aren't kind of topic specific, but really I would like to get 
your view on a range of kind of key issues, I would say, and, and really understand your career and, and where you see kind of planning in Australia heading. So I hope that's okay. I've, I've sort of posed these questions to you and we could, they could take any number of directions, but we'll sort of run through them and, and um, I'm really hoping you can kind of share your, your knowledges with, with the, the people listening. That sounds great, Nicole, and I promise I won't disappear down any rabbit holes. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, the first one, what are your top career highlights? So reflecting on, obviously, I've, I've, I've read your bio and, and sort of have known you for a number of years now. You've, you've had a number of awesome appointments and things. What would you say are the, the top things you've done in your career? So I think my most recent top highlight is uh, I've been deeply honoured to have been made a fellow of the Planning Institute of Australia, which was just incredible. Uh, and I'm still humbled by uh, by my colleagues and peers down here in Tasmania. It was most unexpected. They kind of sprang that surprise on me late last year. Uh, but my career highlight, I would have to say there's two, and and they, they bookend what I've been doing, I guess, a little bit. Uh, the first one was uh, joining the Department of Planning and Urban Development as a young planner in Western Australia and getting my first planning job and being so excited about the opportunity to influence and shape the places where we live and work and play and, and uh, are educated. Uh, and that was so exciting. I, I still remember just how lit up I was walking into that building for the first day and kind of going, whoa, I've made it. <laughs> in hindsight, you know, you, you might look back and laugh a little bit, but it was really special, a really important moment. And I guess the other one was I was very fortunate, uh, as you mentioned, to do a fellowship at Johns Hopkins University in 1999 and I got to work with a hero of mine, uh, Professor David Harvey, uh, who is still with us today. He's a Marxist geographer and has prolific publications, but he's really challenged planning and geography to think about inequalities in cities. And we see that in our cities today, right, with housing affordability crises, with people not having access to proper health care, uh, with differential access to public transport. Not everybody's got good access to public transport. We've got car-dependent cities, even food deserts in our cities where people don't have access to fresh fruit and vegetables or, or quality footpaths or cycling infrastructure. So working with him was a, um, just a mind-blowing uh, opportunity, and he really, um, really galvanised my career, that focus on environmental inequality in cities and what we might do as planners to begin to tackle some of those deep-seated problems. Yeah, amazing. So that might go to the second question that I've got for you around what drives and motivates you as a planner today? Great question. Uh, it's the same drive and motivation I had that first day when I walked into uh, Albert Facey House in, uh, in Western Australia as a young planner, and that was to make a difference in the world. I, I believe that planners are incredibly privileged um, we're not, you know, we, we, when, I, when I talk with my students, we're not the captains of the ship that get to chart the direction necessarily. We're not the funders, but we're nonetheless important brokers in city building and city making. And the, the diverse knowledges that we have can help educate decision makers about uh, how they ought to plan better uh, to achieve the kinds of outcomes that we want. And so I'm still really deeply driven to, to make a difference in the places where we live. And then secondly, to share that knowledge with my students, to light them up like Christmas trees, I guess, and uh, have them excited, uh, not, not naive in thinking that they can change everything. So pragmatic, critically pragmatic, but excited about the prospect of 
brokering real and meaningful changes in the world. Uh, so that's my drive, yeah. Yeah, and do you feel like things in your career have dimmed that drive or you think they've sparked it up? Yeah, they probably sparked it up, actually. Uh, you know, I'm from Twitter. I'm a bit of a, a troublemaker, and I like to give people a bit of curry sometimes. Uh, and if anything, they've um, when I hit some of those barriers that we tend to hit sometimes, it just makes me uh, tap into, uh, you know, that Pulp Fiction movie, the righteous rage that comes from being a planner, and and to reuse that to uh, to really get you through those rough times and to be focused on those sorts of changes we can make. Yeah, no, you, you definitely like to poke the bear, and I, I do enjoy watching <laughs> you do that. <laughs> um, okay, here's a here's sort of the first topic-based question. It's around climate change, you know, and and this is one of the the topics that I see you poke the bear on quite a lot. And and you know, I, I think it's it's one that we need to keep poking because we're just not getting there fast enough. We're not adapting, and we're not making meaningful um, changes to the way we do business to, to actually adapt appropriately to the way that the climate is changing and very rapidly. So in, in with that context, what would you say are the key barriers for us as, as you know, Australian citizens in adapting to climate change? Yeah, that's a great question. And you'd know as someone with kids how scary some of these projections can be. Uh, I, I'm able to work with the climate futures researchers here at the University of Tasmania who are world-class researchers and do downscaled regional climate change modelling. So we can see at a 10 kilometre by 10 kilometre grid a glimpse into that future and it is dark and scary. Uh, I don't want to put read listeners off, but, you know, that's something that we need to be eyes wide open about. So the barriers, I think the most obvious barrier is a lack of leadership in this space. We, we've still got... People asleep at the wheel in our Commonwealth government, um, a prime minister who is almost like a denialist, and, and that's just outrageous. Uh, at this point, in what really is a global climate emergency, we need to have uh, effective leadership. So that's probably the first barrier. The second barrier, I think most Australians are on board with climate change. They recognise it. They're concerned about it. They, they're really hungry for change. But how to do that at scale in such a short amount of time that we have to adapt our cities and our towns, uh, our households, the places where we live and where we work and where we play. How do we adapt those to the scale of changes that are coming? And this is not some science fiction fantasy, right? So I think we, we shouldn't be thinking about uh, geoengineering kind of solutions. The solutions that are available to us are already there in a planner's regular everyday toolkit. Uh, so one of them we might talk about in a little while is urban greening, which is my key focus. But they include some of those tough questions, Nicole, about, for example, coastal retreat. You know, should we be moving away from this this kind of position of stupidity, thinking that we can somehow defend our shorelines against sea level rise and adopt a position more like the Dutch, where we go, look, it's inevitable, it's going to happen. Let's start to retreat in a planned, considered way, and let's begin to think about the kinds of compensation schemes we might need to put in place as we buy out or relocate communities. You know, they did it at a very small level in Grantham in the Lockyer Valley. We can scale that. Uh, we just need to get the courage to do it. Uh, so I think they're the, they're the two big ones for me. And the final one would be the resources as a society collectively agreeing that we need to mobilise resources to um, to bring about the sorts of changes that we're going to have to take. Yeah, great points. Um, in terms of that retreat, it's it's become topical again. You would have seen southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales going through these major flood events earlier this year. 
you know, and I think there's questions around what triggers that. Like how many times does a community, you know, need to go through such a devastating flood before kind of those decisions around relocation, you know, start to become, you know, really critical and, and those conversations with those communities need to happen. Um, and it was at the mayoral level, right, in Grantham, where they just went, enough is enough. Uh, no more. We're not going to have our friends and neighbours and loved ones dying uh, and we're not going to lose property and then have to constantly try and rebuild in some perverse sort of fashion of trying to, you know, push ourselves against climate change. Instead, let's relocate. And, you know, that the miracle of that story was they did it in a year. That's just yeah. Uh, now, sure, it's a small settlement, but there's some really good lessons we can think about there for how to mobilise our communities at this this kind of level that we need to bring about change. And and South East Queensland's a great example. It may mean that we pull people off those floodplains. And then big questions are, well, if we have compensation or buyback schemes, what do we do with that land that we've sterilised? And some of it may be actually helping us to adapt better. Maybe they become climate sinks, you know, sports fields and playing grounds, sure, they can get submerged, but also creating new forests. Uh, it's an area where we call nature-based solutions to climate change. Yeah, and there's, at Arup they talk about rewilding, which I think is yeah. amazing. It's sort of bringing the wild back into our cities and our urban areas because nature knows best, you know, those natural systems that, you know, we were eroded so many years ago when, when um, colonisation occurred, you know, if we could learn from those. And when I did interview Laura Gannon on the on the podcast, she spoke about using you know, um, indigenous practices for bushfire and understanding, you know, when they burnt and, and they sort of understood the country and what was required in order to actually, you know, achieve maximum bushfire fire protection. Yeah, you know, not just a couple of hundred years of having lived in a landscape, but tens of thousands of years, 60, 80, 120,000 years of occupation. You get a lot of cultural knowledge that you can hand down in that time. And you're absolutely right. Aboriginal people have got a system of living with Australia and it's changes in drought and flood and the burning regimes that are needed, but also how to grow food in a sustainable way. They've got incredible knowledges that um, that if we are less arrogant and we listen to carefully that we can learn from. And I think rewilding is a great example, Nicole. It's a, it's a really excellent example. Um, some listeners might be familiar with the Terminator movie, that, that old movie uh, that – Arnold Schwarzenegger was in and, and there's a truck that goes down a concrete uh, drain. Well, that's the Los Angeles River in Los Angeles. And when I was li- living and working in Los Angeles, I was stunned about what the Army Corps of Engineers had done to that river. They entombed it in a concrete sarcophagus, right? But the good news part of this story is that they've been tearing that out and they've been putting uh, vegetation, riparian vegetation, back in along that river and restoring habitat and pulling things back from the floodplain. If they can do it in Los Angeles, we can do it in Australia, right? Come on. <laughs> yeah, that should be the, the catch cry, you know, the slogan. Um, okay, I'd like to ask you, so there's some of the barriers. So we spoke about leadership. You know, I think federal election coming up, you know, you know, we, we need to be making our decision wisely there. You've spoken about, you know, um, the, the support that's needed. And then you also spoke about, you know, the scale of the plan, the, the action that's required. What are some of the most innovative solutions you've seen to overcoming those barriers? Other than, you know, a, a new political figurehead, what sort of some on the ground kind of um, innovative solutions to actually adapting to climate change? That's a great question. And uh, I have some delightful colleagues at different universities, including my former honours supervisor, Jean Hillier, who I'm still friends with and, uh, and who tolerates me still, amazingly enough. But Wendy Steele and Dinah McCullum and Donna Houston as well. And we wrote a book recently called Quiet Activism, 
And it's a book that brings together stories of adapting at the local level, real stories about what people are doing from their backyards to their neighbourhoods to the city scale. And nature-based solutions are one of them for sure. Another one is building more effective social capital. So uh, one of the things that we see in Australia in droughts and bushfires, thankfully, is we still have good social capital where people check in on each other, make sure that their friends and loved ones are okay, sure, but also their neighbours and roll up their sleeves and get in there and give them a hand. So I think that this is a critically um, important strength that we have in Australia, a cultural strength, uh, and we need to draw on that a bit more. Um, but again, I would point to nature-based solutions and uh, the ones that that trouble me the most, the biggest issues that trouble me the most are the heat waves that are coming our way. Heat waves are silent killers and some of your listeners might be familiar with this statistic, but heat waves have killed more Australians than any other natural disaster. Wow. Here's the punchline. Any other natural disaster combined. Wow. So, more deaths than floods, than droughts, than fires attributable to heat waves. They're silent killers and they disproportionately affect, affect older people. We've got a rapidly ageing population in Australia and also younger children uh, for mobility reasons but also physiological reasons. And so I, I think we need to be really attentive to what we can do. And people in New South Wales are outraged about the decision recently to rescind the idea that we should stop black roofs on houses. Um, We really should stop putting black roofs on houses. It is dumb. Um, But other things we need to be doing is to thinking about adjusting our building codes so that our houses are less leaky and more energy efficient and better adapted. And I guess this is a challenge, Nicole, is planning is always looking forwards. But how do we retrofit the existing built environments we have as well? Yeah, it's a really good point. That quiet activism, can we link that in the show notes if we people can. are interested? Okay. Yeah, yeah, a webpage, Climate Adaptation Australia, that we can share with all of those live stories as well. Um, we can definitely link those. Awesome. I'm, I'm keen on that um, comment you made earlier around engineering solutions versus nature-based solutions. And I think often we might think about innovation being about something that, you know, comes about from – some, you know, human made, I guess, or, or, um, you know, in the lab or, you know, a, a new way of thinking, you know, it's sort of that futurism, you know, and, right. and it, maybe it's a gadget that solves it. But, but really what, what I'm hearing you say is nature based is going back. It's going back to what nature has already adapted to and solved in the past. And we've kind of eroded through our human systems. Is that a way of sort of summarizing that or how would you yeah. say that better? No, it's a very good way of summarising it. So I think, you know, when we look at coastlines, the knee-jerk response to shoreline loss tends to be, let's put in a seawall. And if that one fails, let's build a bigger seawall. <laughs> if that one fails, let's build an even bigger seawall, right? So it's, it's that Blade Runner 2046 scenario where you're seeing the movie there behind a giant seawall, right? And that's dystopian. And it's also really stupid because we spend so many resources that will eventually get lost. We can't build it back better in many circumstances. What we can do, though, is we can use solutions like mangroves, uh, and we can use mangroves to stabilise the shoreline, but we can also have seagrass platforms offshore to uh, dissipate and lower wave energy, plant kelp forests that are able to adapt to change, and then where we need to, uh, give nature a little helping hand maybe by putting in platforms like they're putting in in, this, in Sydney Harbour alongside that harbour there, creating platforms where uh, the marine ecology can re-establish. 
Now, the thing about nature-based solutions is they maintain themselves in many ways. We don't need to be constantly having to get involved in that maintenance and upkeep. And if a storm comes along or some kind of perturbation and uh, and some of those mangroves die, um, other mangroves will help regenerate. So that, that's just one small example of how we can harness that living power of nature to help us solve some of these problems. I love it. All right, I've got a, a clincher question here for you that relates to the Olympics. <laughs> and I, I know you're in Tasmania, but since you've moved there and you've sort of had some time out of southeast Queensland, I'm wondering if you could reflect on on planning in southeast Queensland. And, you know, we've got the Olympics in 10 years' time. Um, do you have any thoughts about similarities and differences between your experience in planning for southeast Queensland and then your experience now down in Tasmania? And then with those similarities and differences in mind and that opportunity to reflect, how do you think Queensland can maximise the Olympics and really create that lasting legacy for the people? Great. That's an excellent double-barrel question. So <laughs> Just an easy one. <laughs> uh, so there are surprising similarities between Tasmania's settlements and those in southeast Queensland. Uh, you wouldn't think about it, but we have gridlock roads in Hobart. Now, this is a city of some 210,000 to 20,000, depending on where the final numbers come in. I think they'll come in closer to 210, compared to the huge numbers of people in southeast Queensland, right, in the millions. But Hobart streets get gridlocked, and the reason is partly the topography. Uh, we have a very constrained topography by Kunanyi, Mount Wellington, behind the city, and also by the Derwent River. But more importantly... Uh, it's a highly car-dependent city, and I think this is a real travesty uh, with planning in Tasmania, is uh, we had the first, the very first ever light rail system in the Southern Hemisphere here in Hobart. So they had we had trams here before Melbourne and wow. so Mount Seston, yeah, in the late 1880s. And we tore them up, just like many Australian cities did, like Perth and Adelaide and other cities, in our stupidity in the 1960s when we became obsessed with car-based transport. And we've learned the hard way, you know, through things like obesogenic environments where people who sit behind the wheel of a car for long hours commuting every day are not getting levels of exercise that they need. They're also not interacting with their families, so mental health and anxiety and depression become real issues too. So we see that here in Tasmania. And when we look at Queensland, the solution to the M1 is another lane on the M1, and you go, I'm, seriously, we're still going to do that? You know, Neil Seifen, Jago Dodson and others have been banging on this for decades, and yet we're going to put another lane in. Um, but the lessons that, that have been success stories in southeast Queensland are where, again, we can look to leadership. So the leadership that brought us under the Building Better Cities program, the heavy rail extension down to the Gold Coast from Brisbane, the leadership and foresight that came with putting in the light rail, when there were so many naysayers going, it's not going to work and this is wrong and it's stupid and you're going to ruin everything. Sure, some businesses were hurt. There's no doubt about that. And we should have thought more carefully about a kind of pay it forwards scheme where we could have looked after those businesses and then employed something like value capture or betterment to uh, recoup those costs later. You know, and we've got those innovative solutions. But the light rail, what a great success story. And then we kind of went, oh, let's extend it and let's extend it more and let's extend it more. So we know how to do this. And I think Tasmania can learn from that um, from that solution uh, that we've seen about leadership and 
using proven te- techniques and technologies. But I don't, I don't want to digress here. So your other part of the question is how can Queensland, South East Queensland, maximise the benefits of uh, the Olympic Games, right? And I think that what we can see are the lessons that we learned from the Commonwealth Games. It was incredibly successful. Uh, we can look to other cities in the world that did the Olympic Games the right way and here in Australia. So Sydney Olympic Games was very successful and uh, by clever infrastructure and investment, and facilities that could be adaptively reused, like athletes' villages, for example, that could repurpose for housing. We saw that with the Commonwealth Games in Queensland. The same thing uh, with the Olympic Games in Queensland. So I think it's about clever infrastructure investment, understanding how that couples with land and property development, uh, and getting back to our recurrent theme in our podcast today, can we be experimenting with nature-based solutions, for example, as part of that infrastructure investment? Could we really push building codes to the next level in Queensland to cope with the cyclones that we know are going to track further south so we have resilient buildings? Can we do some really radical experiments in green roofs or green walls? Um, are there ways that we might um, progress transit on demand and really start to get our cities ready for autonomous vehicles when we have autonomous transit on demand? So I think that there's some, there's some key ways that if Southeast Queensland is clever, they will reap a huge legacy benefit, uh, much like Barcelona did from the Olympics that they had in Barcelona. Yeah, absolutely. Great suggestions. Okay, final one. I mentioned at the start of the podcast that uh, the PIA National Congress, it's the first time in, I think, three years that we're having an in-person congress, which is really exciting. So all the planners across Australia are going to descend on Hobart mid-next week. Uh, what are the top tips from you to our Australian planners uh, that are about to converge on, on Hobart? Yeah, yeah. So uh, first, um, be ready for public transport to not be terribly functional, although we're working hard on it. We've got uh, Metro Tasmania who are doing amazing things and, uh, and really working under quite adverse circumstances. But do take the bus. It's a great way to see the city and to get around. Uh, second, it's a foodie's paradise down here in Tassie. It really is. And uh, just go nuts with um, taking advantage of uh, the gin distilleries that we have, for example, uh, uh, amazing restaurants and food. And what a great way to do that if you were to jump on the ferry out to um, Bruni Island and spend a, a day or so cruising around Bruni Island and sampling Bruni Island cheeses and wines and gin and seeing incredible landscapes. So that's worth it for sure. Um, getting into some of the heritage as well and having a look at the beautiful heritage that we still have here in Tasmania. It's a kind of irony that uh, because it's the cities in Tasmania have been in economic stagnation for so long that we didn't do what Perth did and tear down all the heritage buildings in Perth and then rue and regret that later. Uh, instead, um, they're still there. Um, buildings from colonial days Uh Buckley's Rest actually has the Buckley from Buckley's Chance, right? When you say you've got Buckley's, yeah, Buckley's there <laughs> and Buckley's Rest under the ground there. So you can check out Buckley if you wanted to. Um, so there's some, there's some tips, but also do some things like, uh, go and have a look at, um, the Aboriginal heritage opportunities that we have here in Tasmania. Uh, for example, the Muscle Row wind farm up the north of Tasmania is worth a visit. Uh, there's an Aboriginal leader called Manalagena who, uh, mounted a resistance against European invasion and led his people uh, successfully to survive 
uh, and thrive. So Aboriginal people were not sent to extinction, despite some claims. Uh, and Manalagena is celebrated up there in a really wonderful cultural centre that's probably worth a look as well, I'd say. And you can check out those wind farms that are going to be powering Victoria into the future when the second Bass Interconnector goes in. So there's just a few tips, I think. Uh, and uh, enjoy, get out there, enjoy the, the foodie scene. I guess my final one is... Um, and. You really do need to spoil yourself here. Van Diemen's ice cream is just to die for. And Van, <laughs> Diemen's, Van Diemen's ice creamery uh, down on the Hobart waterfront, I don't care if it's like sub-zero, go and get yourself an ice cream because this is the real deal. It's just extraordinarily good. And they've got unbelievable flavours there. I'm not going to ruin it for you. Go and drool and have a look at the flavours and give it a try. Oh, I don't know if I can do that in, you know, the, the freezing temperatures. I'll have to make sure I rug up and then, and then can eat my ice cream. <laughs> you put on your black toasty tuxedo, that puffer jacket, get rugged up and warm. <laughs> and, then, and then make yourself cold. Yeah, because it's really it's, it's the best ice cream I've ever tasted. Well, I think for an ice cream shop to do well in Tassie, they'd have to make some pretty good flavours. So that's, that's a good testament to them. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. Look, I've, re- I've really loved having a chat with you today, Jason. That's been so much fun, and um, but also very, very enlightening and, and educational. And, you know, I think some of the work you're doing uh, with the university down there is, is, is just amazing. So, um, you know, well done. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're really excited and looking forward to meeting a few people again in person, uh, live and real time. Uh, here in Hobart so please do um, do introduce yourself if you see me around the traps I'd love to have a chat all right it's been a pleasure chatting and I'll see you next week it has been a pleasure thanks heaps Nicole and thank you for tuning into the hustle and bustle podcast this week if you've enjoyed this episode please leave a rating and a review so that others find out about the show you can follow us on instagram hustle underscore bustle underscore podcast and linkedin too That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.